And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, today's December 22nd. 356th day of the year. Nine days remain till the year is over with. 2023 is going to see some changes. We're going to get all of our uh, books in the ebook format, and they'll be up on the Amazon. The uh, we're going to add a uh, video version of the show, where we're going to talk about all kinds of different things. Additionally, you'll be able to uh, interact. I'll be doing classes on uh, how to get your veterans' benefits, which the VA seems to go out of its way to make a mystery for most veterans. Luckily, luckily, I had a fairly good teacher who uh, told me a lot of the ins and outs. You know, December's always been a time of great change. For example, in 1869 on this date, Vespasian's proclaimed emperor of Rome. His predecessor, Vitellius, tried to abdicate, but is captured and killed at the Gemonium Stairs. They had an uh, interesting way of changing administrations in Rome. The uh, 1769, the Sino-Burmese War. War ends with the Ming Dynasty withdrawing from Burma forever. The uh, 1790, the Turkish Fortress of Ismail is stormed and captured by Alexander Suvorov and his Russian armies. Uh, 1808, Beethoven conducts and performs in concert at the Theater Anderwin in Vienna with the premiere of his Fifth Symphony, Sixth Symphony, Fourth Piano Concerto, and Choral Fantasy. And uh, as on this day in 1851, the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. burned into ground. 1864, American Civil War. Savannah, Georgia fell to the Union Army of the Tennessee. General Sherman told uh, Lincoln by saying, uh, I'm going to give you a Christmas present, city of Savannah. In 1885, Ito Hirobumi, a samurai, became the first prime minister of Japan. The uh, 1891, the asteroid 323 Brucia becomes the first asteroid discovered using photography. And of course, the 1894, the famous Dreyfus Affair began in France, when Alfred Dreyfus is wrongly accused of treason. In 1937, the Lincoln Tunnel opens up for traffic in New York City. 1940, World War II, Himara is captured by the Greek Army. Now, for those who are not familiar with Himara, it's a municipality and region in southern Albania. It's got a total land area of 571.94 kilometers. And uh, it... Uh, uh, World War II was a time of great flux. 
1942 on this date where Adolf Hitler signed the order to develop the V-2 rocket as a weapon. One of his wonder weapons. A terror rocket. In 1944, the World War II Battle of the Bulge. On this date, German troops demand the surrender of U.S. troops at Bastogne in Belgium. Prompted that famous one-word reply by General Anthony McAuliffe. Nuts. Could have been talking about Congress, but at that point in time, that was his uh, view of um, the request that he surrender. And in '44, also on this date, the People's Army of Vietnam is formed to resist Japanese occupation of Indochina. This is now uh, Indochina is now Vietnam. 1945, President Truman issued an executive order giving World War II refugees precedence in visa applications under U.S. immigration quotas. Now, with that type of example, our current administration has gone nuts, ruling by decree. And let's see, 1974, the House of former British Prime Minister Edward Heath is attacked by members of the provisional IRA. And uh, in 75, President Ford created the Strategic Petroleum Reserve in response to the 1970s energy crisis that has been used by the current administration as uh, gifts to friends. Well, quite a number of things have happened. Uh, 2018, so the federal government shut down on this date. Longest shutdown of the U.S. federal government in history. And since they couldn't screw anything up during that time period, it could have been partially a good thing. All right, we've been talking about uh, some of the stories from some of my books. Um, we talked about unfinished business which is unsolved uh, serial killers. There's been a, a lot of them. The um, you know the unfortunate thing is that um, when you have the organization that's supposed to be investigating the murder cooperating with the killers, it um, does cause a problem. Let's go to San Francisco, 1902. Even then, the city was something of a melting pot for immigrants of all races and classes. It's also a time when a lot of children are forced to forego what we'd call a normal childhood and enter the labor force doing whatever job they could. Such was the case with Eleanor Nora Fuller. Originally born in China, she's 15 years old uh, when she was forced to drop out of school to earn a living and help her mother and three siblings. Previous year hadn't been an easy one for the little family. The parents were recently divorced, and the five of them were having to make it on just what the mother could bring in for this reason, and probably a number of others that we don't know about. Nora decided it was time that she help out. Wanted to try and make a go of it in the theater and made inquiries at an agency to try and find employment related to that field. On June 8, 1902, 
An opportunity came her way she couldn't resist. Saw an advertisement in the San Francisco Chronicle. Very simple one. It said wanted. Young white girl to take care of a baby. Good home, good wages. Hoping to at least get an interview. Nora answered the ad and got a postcard to apply. Postcard told her to meet a man named John Bennett at the popular restaurant at 55 Geary Street. At either 1 p.m. or 6 p.m., she could take her choice as to which time on the day set for the meeting, January 11th. Nora left her home about 5 and for her appointment. Next thing her the young woman was a telephone call to her home that was answered by her 12-year-old brother. Nora told him she was at John Bennett's residence at 1500 Geary Street. Been off the job of caring for the baby and her employer wanted her to start work at once. Nora's mother came on the line, insisted she come home and start her job on Monday. And finally, after some argument, Nora agreed and hung up. And that was the last anybody heard from Nora. And even though she didn't come home that evening, as she'd been instructed to do by her mother, surprisingly, the mother didn't report her as missing for several more days. Must be said, though, that once she was reported as missing, the San Francisco police immediately went to work trying to find the young woman. And based on what Nora's mother told them, officers first went to the popular restaurant where Nora was to have had the meeting with John Bennett. The owner of that restaurant, F.W. Crone, told uh, officers that at about uh, 5.30 uh, on the January 11th, the man had come into the restaurant to let him know he was expecting Young woman to come in looking for John Bennett and police sent her to his table. Man was recognized as a regular by both the owner as well as a longtime waiter. Nobody thought anything odd about the request. In fact, upon more they were questioning, both swore the man had been dining there regularly for at least a decade, though neither had known his name till that particular day. The owner swore he hadn't seen the girl come into the restaurant, though he couldn't say she hadn't. He was busy. He could say John Bennett waited for about half an hour after which he had gone inside and paced impatiently for a few minutes before leaving. He described John Bennett as about 40, average height and weight, with brown hair and a brown mustache. And all in all, he presented a smart, respectable appearance. Officers went to the 1500 Gary Street, the address that uh, Nora had given her brother in a telephone call discovered that this was not a valid address as it was merely a vacant lot. And since Nora allegedly called her home from the address, the question now arose that Nora lied, and if she did, why? Over the next month, there was an extensive newspaper coverage regarding what was being called the Nora Fuller case. Splashed across the front page of all the San Francisco papers, but in spite of a citywide manhunt, not a single trace of the young girl was ever turned up. In addition, there was absolutely no trace of the mysterious John Bennett found as well. But this was about to change. Afternoon of February 8th, H.E. Dean, a uh, inspector and rent collector for the real estate firm of Umson and Company, entered a rented property located at 2211 Sutter Street in San Francisco. Residence was locked and it was fairly clear nobody was at home. So Dean used a pass key to enter the premises. Now, entering the 
some uh, a uh, residential premises with the passkey was not a normal practice, but the rent was due, and Umstead Company had been informed the tenants had moved out. The house had been rented only a month earlier by C.B. Hawkins, but all attempts to contact him had failed. The, uh, for that reason, normal practices were set aside, so to speak. I'm not sure what that bing-bing is, but it is annoying. Well, it's, uh, hmm. I'm trying to hit one of the switches. I lost my place. Well, they've been informed that Hawkins had moved out, and all attempts to contact have been in vain, so that was when they sent Dean to check on things. And as soon as he walked into the premises, Dean said he knew something wasn't right. Wasn't a stick of furniture on the entire first floor. Went from room to room and found there wasn't a single indication anybody had been there in some time. Once he finished the inspection of the first floor, he slowly climbed the steps to the second floor. Went slowly down the second floor hallway, checking each room as he passed, only to see that each was empty. Finally, he noticed a door at one end of the, uh, to one of the back bedrooms was tightly closed. Slowly, cautiously, he opened that closed door to see the room was in darkness. All the shades drawn down to the very bottom of the, the window. He could just make out there were pieces of clothing strewn about the floor of that room. Well, he didn't go any further into that dim bedroom. He said he had a sense something just wasn't right. Deciding that caution was the better part of valor, he pulled the door softly closed and returned to the street. Came back with police officer Gill. Together, they went back up the stairs, pausing just outside that closed bedroom door. Well, at this point, taking the lead, Officer Gill cautiously entered the dimly lit bedroom, went over to the closest window. Slowly, he raised the shade and turned toward the only piece of furniture in the room, which was a large bed. To his horror, lying spread eagle on the bed was a young girl. She was clearly dead. I mean, part of her body was decomposed. At that point, Officer Gill left the room, closed the door behind him. With Dean in tow, he left the house to summon the detectives. After initial examination, it was determined the dead body was out of the missing Nora Fuller. She'd been raped and strangled, and her body had been savagely mutilated. The research of the property revealed one towel. Mostly empty body of bottle of whiskey, the butt of a cigar, and several pieces of junk mail addressed to Mrs. C.B. Hawkins of 221 Sutter Street. One of the pieces of junk mail had been opened and stuffed in the pocket of Nora Fuller's jacket. Her purse was also found, but it contained neither money nor the postcard that led her to meet 
the mysterious Mr. John Bennett. Further investigation revealed that the bed was secondhand and been bought the day after the house had been rented, as had the sheets, the pillows, and the quilt. Bedding had been placed on the beds straight out of the packaging without the benefit of being laundered first. The only other furniture in the entire house was a single chair that had also been bought secondhand. Further forensic examination showed that Nora had some alcohol in her system, and the last thing she'd eaten was an apple. It was estimated she ate the uh, apple about an hour before her death. Nora's mother said that Nora had eaten an apple just before setting out for her appointment. This, of course, led authorities to believe she'd been murdered almost immediately after arriving at the house. Police now believe the man known as John Bennett and the man who rented the house as C.B. Hawkins were probably the same man. Canvas of secondhand shops in the area confirmed that a man fitting Bennett's description had purchased pieces of furniture and bedding only a few days before Nora's disappearance. And they all said that the deliveries had been made to 2211, uh, uh, I'm sorry, two, one more time, 221 Sutter Street. Information uh, called into question the initial assumption Nora had been killed almost immediately. Why go to all the trouble of renting a house and buying furniture if the plan was to kill her immediately? Didn't make any sense. And if things weren't confusing enough, a friend of Norris came forward with a new twist of the mystery. According to Madge Graham, Norris had been secretly dating an older man by the name of John Bennett for some time. And Madge went on to say that she'd even covered for Norris by telling Norris' mother that she and Nora at the theater when in actuality Norris was out with Bennett. Madge also claimed that the ad for the nanny job was actually a ruse to fool Ms. Fuller into thinking that Nora was applying for a job as a nanny when she really intended to meet her much older boyfriend. While the entire concept that Nora would go to the trouble and expense of putting an ad in the paper and answering it boggled the imagination. It explained why Nora gave her brother the wrong address, though. Of course, the placing of the ad did tend to be an extreme method of getting time to meet a man, and ads weren't cheap by any means, even in 1902. Madge's story received some support when a grocer by the name of A. Minky came forward to reveal that Nora often came into his store to use the phone to call a nearby hotel where her, when her family had a phone at home. They thought maybe she was calling her mysterious older boyfriend. Police were somewhat suspicious of Madge Graham's story, nevertheless, but uh, then a new lead came to light that immediately and indirectly supported Madge's story. January 18th, a week after Nora's disappearance and three weeks before her body was found, police got a report that a man by the name of Charles B. Hadley, clerk at the San Francisco Examiner, allegedly embezzled a large sum of money from his employers and vanished. In investigating the embezzlement case, police talked to Hadley's girlfriend, Molly Blazier. She had a few interesting things to say. Gave police samples of Hadley's handwriting, which bore a marked resemblance not only to John Bennett's handwriting on a classified ad form, but he'd submitted to the San Francisco Chronicle, but also to the handwriting of C.B. Hawkins in the rental agreement for the house at uh, Sutter Street. Now the question was, could the missing Charles Hadley actually be John Bennett as well as C.B. Hawkins? Well, 
this fact referenced uh, information received from the owner of the restaurant that John Bennett would always order a porterhouse steak and only eat the tenderloin portion. So that's got a was supported by Ollie Blazier when uh, she told police Hadley had a particular fondness for tenderloin. And he'd seemed oddly disturbed after reading in the newspaper that Nora Fuller had been murdered and she'd been found with blood on a few pieces of his clothing or and she had found blood on a few pieces of his clothing about the time it was believed Nora had been murdered. Ollie also added that uh, an afterthought that though Hadley was clean shaven he sometimes wore a false mustache. And that calls into question uh, a lot of facts that were being bandied about in this case. Further investigation revealed that Charles B. Hadley was actually Charles Stark, who was wanted for another charge of embezzlement in Minneapolis in 1889, and he also allegedly raped another 15-year-old girl in San Francisco in 1900. So now the question became, who was Charles Stark? Was he really the killer of 15-year-old Nora Fuller? In spite of a nationwide manhunt, Hadley or Stard or whatever his name might be was never found. And this case brings up several questions that, as of yet, have never been answered. Was the body on the bed really that of Nora Fuller? When and how did she actually die? DNA testing was still long in the future and fingerprints were unheard of in San Francisco at that time. How long had the girl been dead when her body was found? If John Bennett was Nora's boyfriend, why did he ask the owner of the restaurant to direct a girl that would ask for him to his table? And who was Nora calling at the nearby hotel? You know, even assuming Nora was planning to set up housekeeping with an unknown man, there's no proof that it was Hadley or Bennett or whatever his name may have been. This was a case for forensic evidence, if there ever was one. Of course, by the time DNA and fingerprints became common, any and all evidence regarding this case was long since uh, gone the way of the, of the dodo. Now, this next case deals with an individual whose name has become synonymous with, um, well, I won't say high class, high-placed high individuals. It's the death of Little Lord Fauntleroy. March 8, 1921, the body of a young boy, estimated to be between five and seven years old, was fished out of a pond near the Lachlan Stone Company by one John Burrich. Initial examination suggested the child had been killed by a blow to the head with a blunt object and been in the water for some time. Determined the child had brown eyes and blonde hair. And from his clothing, it was clear that the child's parents had money. Now, due to the child's apparel, the investigators started calling the boy Little Lord Fauntleroy. And since the assumption was the boy's parents were affluent, it was assumed... This case will be quickly solved, at least insofar as the child's identity was concerned. But such was not to be the case. And though detailed descriptions of the dead child were immediately circulated, somebody came forward to claim the body. 
Police even displayed the body at the local funeral home for several days, but nobody appeared concerned about the child. Then a $1,000 reward was posted for any information about the boy's identity. Still, nobody came forward with any information. And in the time this child's body was found, in 1921, $1,000 was a considerable sum of money. There was only one clue that ever came forward. An employee of the Lachlan Stone Company reported that a couple had come to the business office a month before the child's body was found and asked if anybody had seen a little boy in the area. They seemed very upset. The man was seen to scan the area around the quarry carefully as though looking for something. Finally, the couple gave up and drove off. The employee failed to get their license number, so it was impossible for the authorities to, to find them. There was speculation the dead boy had been kidnapped for ransom. If this was the case, it was believed the kidnappers may have told the parents that their child would be near the quarry. Of course, if this was the case, why didn't the parents go to the police? Then there's a report that the woman that had asked about the child had committed suicide by jumping into the quarry where the boy's body was found. But a thorough search. Now I got pulled away for a second. Uh, even though there had been a report of the suicide of the, uh, the woman, a thorough search of the quarry by the police didn't find the woman's body. Then there's the report that came from a man from Chicago by the name of J.B. Belson. He thought the child might be his nephew and that the child might have been murdered by his, his sister's ex-husband. Police investigated this lead thoroughly before they decided it led nowhere. A local woman, a local woman from Lakeisha by the name of Minnie Conrad raised the money to bury the child and even took care of his grave until she died. As an interesting side note, there have been numerous reports over the years that another woman whose face was always concealed by a veil would come and leave flowers on little Lord Fonderoy's grave. Never been identified. To date, the real identity of that dead child has never been determined. But I would suggest that with today's interest in genealogy and DNA databases there's, that are available, his relatives could easily be found. Just take uh, the money to dig up the body and get a DNA sample, assuming after all this time a DNA sample would be viable. Well, from Little Lord Fauntleroy, let's turn to the Atlanta Ripper. Now, Atlanta, Georgia has always been the scene of a lot of bloody murders, but the story of the Atlanta Ripper is unusual in the length of time this killer prowled the streets of this city without being apprehended. Interestingly, this case didn't receive much in the way of publicity outside uh, the city as the victims of the, the individual known as the Atlanta Ripper were members of the black community. Then, as now, in Georgia, issues in the black community tend to stay in the black community. These killings actually appear to have been begun in the year 1909. No clear evidence that attributed every one of these killings to the same individual. Actually, the police never really pursued the idea of the Atlanta Ripper believing that there was no such thing. However, the circumstances of each killing seemed to show a decided relationship to each other, making it likely it was one person committing all the murders. first killing that was probably committed by the Atlanta Ripper took place in the year 1909. 
In April of that year, the body of Della Reed was discovered in a trash pile. September of that year, a female victim who's never been identified was pulled out of Peachtree Creek. She'd been stabbed and her throat had been cut. A series of murders that many people feel were actually committed by the Atlanta Ripper continued through the year 1910. In addition to the two I just listed, there were seven others. Of course, researchers have argued that these seven murders may not have been committed by the Ripper since all but one was shot. They could have simply been the victims of domestic violence or other circumstances that led to their murders. Certainly, it's not beyond the realm of possibility that these women were, in fact, Ripper victims, but he simply changed his methods of killing. Many who've written about this time period have pointed to the clear institutionalized racism that uh, existed in Atlanta and still does, frankly. Only three years before the first murder when there were massive race riots in Atlanta was 25 African Americans were killed by white mobs following a series of accusations they were raping white women. Many of these accusations were later proven to be false, but that didn't bring back those killed during the riots. It's also true during this time period, in spite of Claims of tolerance and progress in Atlanta that were made by the mayor of Atlanta and the governor of Georgia, the Jim Crow laws were still on the books. Black voters were still faced with a poll tax that literally disenfranchised them, and police investigators generally paid little attention to crimes committed in the black community. It wasn't until 1910 that it began to become clear to even the most myopic city leader, that the evidence supported the idea that if it was a single individual who was committing these murders. Late 1910, I might add. Details studied the evidence, when prejudice was put aside, that these murders all showed the hallmarks of a woman-hating psychopath in the vein of Jack the Ripper who terrorized London in the 1880s. The murderer that seemed to gain the full attention of the... Uh, when the police took place October 3rd, 1910. That morning, the body of a 23-year-old cook by the name of Maggie Brooks was discovered. Had he been bashed in with a rock or some other similar weapon? Time went on, it became clear to the police that this uh, bashing into the skull was a trademark of the murders that happened later. The trademark, so to speak, of the Atlanta Ripper. Of course, as the time, police still didn't come to understand that this was the work of a serial killer. In 1910, the concept of a serial killer just didn't compute. One looks at the cases individually, not as a whole. Patterns are hard to spot. Frankly, with the murder rate in the black community in the early 1900s, the Ripper could have started killing well before 1909, but this fact would never be confirmed due to the desire of authorities not to open old wounds or further embarrass themselves for their failure to miss the signs of a serial killer. However, at the time, since there were no more unexplained uh, murders of black women for the balance of the year, it was business as usual. Then on January 22, 1911, 35-year-old Rosa Trice was found with her skull caved in and her throat slashed. Evidence showed her body had been drugged to where it was found, only a hundred yards from her own doorstep. Typical myopic knee-jerk reaction. Police immediately arrested her husband, John Trice, for the murder. Case closed. Brilliant detective work. That is, until they had to release him for lack of evidence. 
in hindsight, Rosa Trice's murder became the template against which other Ripper murders were compared. The Ripper's modus operandi was to approach a woman on the street, bash her in the head, and drag her body to a more secluded spot where he would take his time with her. Generally, this meant the victim was stabbed and mutilated before her throat was finally slashed. Another peculiar action of the Ripper was to cut the woman's shoes off their feet and take them with him. In February, Lucinda McNeil was murdered with a straight razor. Immediately, there were those who believed that the Ripper had struck again. But in typical fashion, police immediately arrested the husband based on some witness statements Lucinda had been killed by her husband in a drunken rage. No proof, of course. Charles McNeil was tried and convicted of her murder, getting a life sentence in prison. Like finding a needle in a haystack, the police were dealing with too many crimes to be able to get the big picture. Not that the murder of a black woman was given much attention in 1911 Atlanta. The next actual Ripper murder took place February 18, 1911. This time the scene of the crime was just past the Atlanta city limits, which meant that the Atlanta police were not the primary investigating agency. It also meant that they, were basic, that they basically ignored the crime. But be that as it may, the murdered woman, who's still unidentified to this day, appeared to be about 25 years old. Her skull was smashed in. Though there was no mention in media reports of her throat being slashed. Interesting to note that the killer took his time with her as there were empty beer body bottles, little, little bottles, strewn around the body. April 5th, 1911, Georgia Brown was found dead. Since she was shot, not bashed in the head, most people don't believe she was a victim of the Atlanta Ripper. However, whether she was or not will never be known as her murder, murder was never solved. Next murder took, uh, that was probably committed by this unknown killer took place May, uh, May 27th, 1911. Though there had been a fairly lengthy period of time between murders to this point, something changed. Murder took place on May, uh, May 27th seemed to be the beginning of a series of crimes committed by this creature of the shadow. May 27th. Mary Bell Walker was a cook. She was walking home from her job on a Saturday night and apparently came face to face with the mysterious Ripper. Found dead the next morning, her throat had been slashed. June 15th, the next victim was added to the list. Her name was Addie Watts. Found with her skull smashed in with a rock. Body had been drugged into some shrubbery where she had been beaten in the head with a train coupling pin. And as a final indignity, her throat was slashed. June 24th, another black woman by the name of Lizzie Watts was murdered. She'd been hit in the head, drugged into some nearby bushes, and her throat had been slashed. Though the police maintained they'd begun to suspect a serial killer was at work, it appears that it was an enterprising newspaper reporter who actually noticed the pattern. Until the paper started asking if there was a killer on the loose, the stories of the murder of black women, if they were reported at all, were relegated to the back pages with little detail. It was assumed the killings were simply the product of the degeneracy to be found in the black community, and certainly initially nobody in their right mind assumed that one person was committing all these murders. 
In fact, in response to the suggestion there was a single killer, so resistant were some authorities to the idea of one killer, it was claimed that this was a convenient and fictional scapegoat for men to use to cover up the murder of their wives or girlfriends. July 1st, another attack took place. But the purported second victim of this night managed to survive. I give a brief description of her attacker. On this Saturday night, 20-year-old Emma Lou Sharp was sitting at home waiting for her mother to come back from the grocery store. And finally concerned it was taking her too long to come back. Emma Lou began to walk to the grocery store. Her mother was so late. Emma Lou got to the grocery store and had to be told her mother had never been there. No idea what to do or where else to look for her mother. Emma Lou decided to return home. On the way there, she was approached in the street by a tall, broad-shouldered black man wearing a wide-brimmed hat. Beside herself with worry, she didn't really pay attention when the man spoke to her. Asked how she was feeling, baffled by the question, but answered just fine and tried to keep walking. But he stepped in front of her and blocked her path. Now, concerned for her own safety, she tried to get around the man, and she brushed past him. She heard him say, Don't be afraid. I never hurt girls like you. In the next breath, he stabbed her in the back. Feeling the knife enter her back, Emma Lou screamed at the top of her lungs and took off running as fast as she could, blood running down her back. Luckily, some neighbors heard her scream and came running to her assistance. The mysterious black man in the wide-brimmed hat stopped chasing her and literally vanished back into the shadows from which she had come. Her mother was not as lucky as Emma Lou. Neighbors who were searching for Emma Lou's attacker found her mother's body in some nearby bushes. She'd been hit in the head and her throat had been slashed. July 10th, workmen on Atlanta Avenue noticed a trail of blood leading into a small gully. Deciding to follow the blood trail, they found the body of Sadie Holly. Head had been bashed in with a rock, which was found lying nearby. Her throat had been slashed. Her shoes had been cut off her feet. Bloodhounds were brought in to try and track the killer, but they lost the scent after about 200 yards. Crime scene contained all the classic trademarks of the Atlanta Ripper, but the police referred to rely on tried and true methods of solving the crime. Find somebody to arrest. Anybody. It really didn't matter. Once they can find somebody to arrest, they can close the case and go on about other things. Next day, they arrested a man by the name of Henry Huff and charged him with Sadie's murder. Witness claimed he had seen Huff with Sadie on the night of the murder, and they'd been arguing. Additionally, police claimed Huff had been found with dirt and blood on his clothes. And as a result of this witness's unsupported word, Huff was held on suspicion, eventually indicted. Though it appeared nobody, not even the police, really believed he was guilty. But the police could now brag they'd caught the killer that which removed some of the pressure on them from the leaders of the black community. Same time as police arrested Henry Huff, they also arrested another man witnesses said had been seen with Sadie. His name was Todd Henderson. And there's some sources that claimed that Emma Lou Sharp had identified Henderson as the man that stabbed her in the back, but others said she couldn't be sure. Put some icing on the cake, so to speak. Police arrested and indicted a third suspect for this the murder of um, Sadie. His name was John Daniel. Everybody soon was assured that the killings were at an end with all these arrests. Nobody seemed really confident the Atlanta Ripper had actually been called. In spite of these assurances, on August 31st, there was another murder that revealed the same trademarks as the earlier killings. The victim was 20-year-old Marion Duncan. 
body was found lying on the railroad tracks on the west side of Atlanta. That thought had been slashed and her shoes had been cut off her feet. October 31st, another victim was found. Her name was Eva Florence, and her head had been bashed in and her throat slashed. Everything about this murder screamed ripper. November, another victim was discovered. Her name was Minnie Wise, and she was hit in the head with a rock, and her body was found dumped in a trash heap where two previous victims had been found. Her throat was slashed, and right index finger was cut off at the joint. National police immediately suspected her husband, Bud Wise, had killed her, and seemed to made it look like a ripper murder, but this was never proven. At this point, police have, would have arrested the Easter Bunny to keep from uh, admitting there was a serial killer stalking the black community. As with so many serial killers, there seemed to be a tendency to escalate the horror of the killings. The same was true of the Atlanta Ripper. November 21st, the, the still warm body of Mary Putnam, Putnam was found lying in a ditch, partially covered with loose dirt. The skull had been crushed, her throat had been slashed. This was enough for it to be viewed as a ripper murder, but in this case, her breast was also slashed open and her heart torn out of her ribcage and left sitting beside the body. This gruesome act, the ripper was believed to have ended his killings for 1911. And during the first few months of 1912, there were five black women murdered in Atlanta. Unfortunately, due to an absence of records, it's impossible to tell how many victims were killed by the ripper, how many of these victims were killed by the ripper. January 12, 1912, Hyda Ferguson was found stabbed to death. Again, in an immediate knee-jerk reaction, police arrested her boyfriend, Lucky Elliott, who was later convicted of the murder. All the evidence against him was circumstantial, but you have to remember, police relied on their gut feelings, and they knew he did it. So he had to be convicted. On Saturday, January 20th, the body of Pearl Williams was found. Her throat had been slashed. Police pointed the finger at Frank Harvey and told witnesses he wanted to marry her, and if he couldn't have her, nobody could. Police also arrested a 17-year-old boy by the name of Edgar Evans in regard to this murder. His involvement was never revealed. His name just literally dropped out of the records at that point. February 15th, the body of Alice Owens was found. While some viewed this as another ripper killing, the police immediately arrested her husband, Charles Owens, for her murder, and he was later convicted based on somewhat sketchy circumstantial evidence. April 15th, the body of an unknown 15-year-old girl was found. Her throat had been cut and she had been thrown into the river. May 11th, an unidentified woman was found and had been hit in the head and dragged into some nearby shrubbery and had her throat slashed. As far as we can determine, this murder of the unidentified woman on May 11th was the last of the Ripper murders. Some question whether or not all the murders committed over that two-year period when the Ripper was said to be most active were actually committed by this one man. Unfortunate thing is that due to the large number of crimes committed in the black community during this time period and the tendency of law enforcement to chalk them up to the degeneracy of the black race, the investigation never seriously addressed the possibility there was a serial killer attacking black women. That's a sad commentary on the concept of equal justice for all. You know, if you know anything about Western history, one name that quite often heard is that of Pat Garrett. His name was actually Patrick Floyd Jarvis Garrett. And he's well known to any student of the Old West. He was at one time or another a lawman, a bartender, an author, a Texas Ranger, and a customs agent. But he's best known for allegedly killing Billy the Kid. 
Various times he served as the sheriff of Lincoln County, New Mexico, as well as Donna Anna County, New Mexico. Like many famous personages from the Old West, his reported life is a mixture of legend and fact. One thing we know for sure, he was murdered February 29, 1908, under very strange circumstances, and his murder is still unsolved today. There are many stories told about Pat Garrett's life and death. He said to have killed Billy the Kid with a shot to the heart in a dark room. When there's evidence that Pat Garrett actually killed, actually faked Billy's death to help this young uh, man get a fresh start and earn himself a $500 reward promised to him by Lou Wallace, the territorial governor in the, in the uh, process. I wrote a book that looked at this case. It's called The Border Escapades Billy the Kid. It came out in 2017. Evidence is fairly strong. He did not kill Billy the Kid. He killed a member of his gang but and, uh, and then passed him off as Billy. And at that point in time, once again, they would have indicted and tried the Easter Bunny for Billy the Kid's crimes if they could have made, got the Easter Bunny to stand still. What's not talked about much is that after he chose not to seek re-election as sheriff of Lincoln County in 1882, he moved to Texas. March 10, 1884, Texas Governor John Ireland appointed Garrett as a lieutenant of the Texas Rangers. In spite of enjoying his duties, within a year, Garrett resigned his commission and returned to his ranch near Roswell, New Mexico. Now, he wasn't a man who liked to stay in one place for too long. 1892, he moved his large family to Uvalde, Texas, where he became a very close friend to John Nance Garner, a man who would one day be vice president of the United States. Garrett seemed to be happy in Uvalde, but something happened in New Mexico that drew him back. January 31st, 1896, Colonel Albert Jennings Fountain, a distant relative of mine, and his eight-year-old son Henry vanished on the edge of White Sands area in New Mexico. The mystery of what happened to the fountains has never been solved. Apache scouts were brought in to try and track the buckboard that Fountain had been driving at the time he disappeared, but to no avail. Not even Pinkerton the detectives were able to determine what had happened. April of 1896, Garrett was appointed as sheriff of Donna Anna County to solve the mystery. By 1898, he, he collected sufficient evidence to make arrests and asked for warrants for Oliver M. Lee, William McNew, Bill Carr, and James Gilliland. Some months before the four were captured at trial, they were found not guilty. After Garrett killed his last bad man, a man wanted for murder by the name of Norman Newman, President Theodore Roosevelt nominated Garrett for the post of collector of customs in El Paso, Texas in 1901. One of three men known as Roosevelt's White House gunfighters. Fat Masterson and Ben Daniels were the other two. There was a public outcry against his appointment, but Roosevelt was adamant in his determination to appoint Garrett to that position. Well, as a result of Roosevelt's firm support, Garrett's appointment was confirmed by the Senate January 2, 1902. Problem soon to be that Garrett performed his duties if he was a sheriff, riding roughshod over a lot of folks. Then in May of 1903, he got into a public fistfight with an employee. Each person had to pay $5 for disturbing the peace, and the result of all this was his list of enemies was growing. A steady stream of complaints that Garrett was incompetent was sent to Washington, but Roosevelt was firm in his support of Garrett. 
Further show his support for the former lawman, Roosevelt even invited Garrett to attend a Rough Rider reunion being held in San Antonio. And since Garrett had never been a member of this illustrious group, it was taken as a slap in the face to his critics. Garrett attended the event and he brought a guest of his own who he introduced to the president. The guest was Tom Powers, who Garrett introduced as a cattleman from Texas. Garrett and Powers and Roosevelt were even photographed together and the three sat at the same table for dinner. Garrett's enemies were quick to point out that the cattleman from Texas was actually Tom Powers, the owner of a notorious dive in El Paso called the Coney Island Saloon. Well, for Roosevelt, this was the last straw. He replaced Garrett with a new collector January 2nd, 1906. And losing his appointment as customs collector left Garrett in a severe financial straits. His ranch near Roswell was heavily mortgaged and when he was unable to make payment, the county auctioned off Garrett's personal possessions in order to satisfy personal judgments against him. Total from the auction uh, came to only $650. With the appointment of George Curry as territorial governor of New Mexico by Roosevelt, Garrett thought he saw a way out of his financial problems. Arranged a meeting with Curry through a, was a longtime friend. Curry promised Garrett that as soon as he was inaugurated as territorial governor to appoint Garrett to be superintendent of the Territorial prison in Santa Fe. Unfortunately for Garrett, Curry's inauguration was several months away, and Garrett needed money right away. Leaving his family in New Mexico, Garrett returned to El Paso, Texas, where he took a job with the real estate firm H.M. Maple and Company. Also moved in with a woman by the name of Miss Brown, who was actually an El Paso prostitute. When word reached Governor-elect George Curry of Garrett's living arrangements in El Paso, immediately withdrew his offer to be superintendent of the territorial prison, which left Garrett even more desperate than ever. According to people in the Mexico town of Oro Grande, after this attack pack, setback, Pat Garrett left El Paso and moved to Oro Grande, where he planned to open a store. The building he rented still stands, and it's looked at as something resembling a museum about Garrett. About this same time, Dudley Poe Garrett, Pat's son, had signed a five-year lease for his Bear Canyon ranch with Jesse Wayne Brazil. Brazil said he planned to run cattle on the ranch, but instead brought in a large herd of goats, which ruined the land for cattle grazing for some time. Garrett tried to break the lease due to the goat issue, but more importantly because the, the money for Brazil's operation had uh, come from his neighbor, W.W. W. Bill Cox, and Brazil's partner was going to be Archie Prentice Print Road, who Garrett despised. When Brazil refused to terminate the lease, the matter went to court. Attempting to play peacemaker, James Miller, or James Brown Miller, who was also known as Killing Jim and Killer Miller and Deacon Jim, um, he was actually a well-known gunfighter and professional killer. Um, met with Garrett to try to work out a solution to the problem. After his meeting with Garrett, Miller then met with Brazil, who agreed to break the lease of somebody to buy his goat herd. Relative of Miller's by marriage, Carl Adamson agreed to purchase the goat herd of 1,200 goats. But at the last minute, Brazil claimed he'd miscounted actually 1,800 rather than 1,200. Adamson refused to buy that many goats, so the deal fell through. Later, Adamson agreed to meet with Garrett in Brazil to see if they could reach a compromise. According to one story, Garrett and Carl Adamson were riding together from Las Cruces to the meeting. Brazil appeared on horseback along the way, and Garrett was shot and killed, though who did it and why remains a mystery. 
That being said, according to the story told in Oral Grandy, Gear was actually riding into Las Cruces on a buckboard for the meeting and stopped along the roadside to relieve himself, as he did many times. As he was in the process of relieving himself, somebody stepped from the trees and shot Garrett. The body left lying alongside the road. It's agreed that both Adamson and Brazil returned to Las Cruces, where Brazil supposed to have told Deputy Sheriff Felipe Lucero he had killed Garrett. Does stretch the credibility a little more time the credulity that Garrett just happened to stop at a place where somebody laid in wait for him. Maintained by those Nora Grandy that Garrett was known to stop at one particular place along the road to relieve himself, so was this a premeditated killing? If Brazil was gonna make a lot of money selling the goat herd, which was the alleged purpose of the meeting, why would he kill Garrett? And why would a professional assassination excuse me, assassins such as James Miller get involved as a peacemaker in this particular disagreement. Brazil's trial conducted May 4th, 1909. Brazil was represented by Albert Bacon Fall, for, uh, future Secretary of the Interior. The only eyewitness, Carl Adamson, was never called as a witness. As a result, Brazil was acquitted of Garrett's murder. For the time, Albert Bacon Fall was a very well-connected politically as, and was an expensive attorney. And all Brazil's money was tied up in the goat herd, so who financed his defense? And why was Adamson not called to testify? Was the fix in insofar as Garrett's murder trial? Whatever may have been the case, for a man like Garrett to be murdered while relieving himself on the side of the road was ignominious end. And certainly, it's a um, an issue that should have been addressed by the highest authorities in the state. Unfortunately, the murder of Pat Garrett ended a lot of political problems for a lot of, of uh, high-powered politicos. And who did uh, Killer and Miller pull the trigger? We'll never know unless somebody wrote the story in their diary and it comes to light. Well, on that note, we come to the end of today's show. I'll not be doing a show tomorrow, which is the Friday before Christmas, and all through the house. Not a creature was stirring, except the one chasing the mouse. So until Monday, the day after Christmas, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show, wishing everybody a Merry Christmas. And a happy good night.